Good is not great. Good is not bad either. Neither is good good enough when God wants for us, expects of us, great. Good enough can become an enemy of great. Now that's kind of a tongue twister thought. But it's one that I want us to just kind of reverberate in our minds a little bit on how we can be sucked in, lured in, believe in that that my faith is good enough, that I am good enough, that life is good enough, and that good enough becomes almost a, a point of complacency. Churches face this, this temptation. Individuals face this temptation. It is inevitable that you will face this temptation if you are not already in this temptation. And again, good is good, but good can be bad when good enough becomes the highest standard when God is actually asking of us greatness and expects of us greatness. Now again, I want to say that there are out there good followers of Christ. There are great followers of Christ And I don't want to dog on the good followers of Christ because I would say that the good followers of Christ are at least better than the notional nominal followers of Christ. And again, this goes back to some messages that we shared back in the summer, but the idea of notional and nominal Christians is very, very affluent in our our Christian circles today, that I am notionally or nominally a follower of Christ, but sold out all in, everything on the table, uh, there's a lot smaller number of, uh, of those to choose from and, and to locate out there. But I, I want to say that good is good. Good is good. And, and, and today we look at, 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 go on in our study in the book of Ephesians, so we'll be finding Ephesians chapter 1, and we look at a situation that is very good. We look at a, at a church when, that is miles upon miles, thousands of miles of separated land and sea separating Paul, who's on the western coast of Italy, from the believers in Ephesus that are on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And as you were to see this on a map, you would see that you would go across land and sea, land and sea to come across Aegean Sea, the Ionian Sea. But before you would cross the Ionian Sea, you would cross into Greece, and you'd cross over Greece, and you'd go to Italy, then you would end up in Rome. If you went to the other side of Rome, look at this map here. We'll have it up here on the screen, I think. Maybe, one of these days. All right, there's a map. There it is. You go land and sea, and there's something that happens, though, that happens when the church at Ephesus, way, way, way over here, and where Paul is in prison in Rome. There's something that happens. There's news that travels, and it's a beautiful story. And if you look there in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 15, you see what Paul says about these believers. And he greets them and he, and he comes out to them in this, this thanksgiving and, and prayer. And he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love. Now, this was before email, internet. This was before any other thing other than good old-fashioned snail mail. And yet, somehow, the believers at Ephesus had such a dynamic, awesome, good faith that the word of their faith 
had traveled. Now, Paul opens up a lot of his letters, seven out of ten letters. He, he, he greets them and he, he talks about their faith. Five of those letters, he talks about their love. So talking about faith and talking about love is very common in Paul's letters. But I think it's a beautiful thing that you could easily skip past if you're just quickly surveying the book of Ephesians and you would skip past the fact that he has heard of their faith. An exceptional faith. A good faith, an exemplary faith, but is good, good enough? And I think what we find in the book of Ephesians here is that Paul doesn't stop there. He says, yes, your faith is good. Yes, your love. It's, it's very clear. There is a sweet fellowship among the father, followers of Christ, but good is not good enough. Let's go further in our faith. Let's go further in our love. Let's go further in this whole Christian devotion. I like the story. It's told of John Stanford who... When, as a superintendent in the Seattle school districts, was able to take a fledgling metropolitan school district and put life back into it, bring order back. He later dies of leukemia. But before he dies of leukemia, and he's talking about the whole school system and the rebirth and the uh, the uh, re-energizing the school system and bringing life back to it, that he would constantly be asked, well, how are things going in the school? And he would say this. He would say, perfect and improving. And I thought about that statement. It's a beautiful statement. The whole concept of, yes, it's good. Yes, we have reached test scores. Yes, we have graduates. Yes, we have all this. Yes, we've breathed life back into it. And yes, it is perfect, but we can still have room for improvement. Now, what if we took that same mentality into our faith life? Now, I know you talk about this in business all the time. How we're here, but how can we be better? And it's that constant push and drive. And probably even as I talk about this, there's a little bit of fatigue that comes over you. But I don't want this to be some kind of external thing. This is an internal thing. We've been talking about that for the past two weeks. Of something that happens on the inside of us. It's a beautiful thing that Paul goes through as he begins to talk about their faith. He says, yes, I've heard of your faith. Yes, I've heard of your love. And it is beautiful. But I am still praying for you. And so what we do is we kind of come into a middle of of a prayer. We finished with a worship doxology from Paul. Now we go into a prayer of Paul. And so let's just pick up reading in, in verse 16 uh, through verse 19. Because it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and, a revel- and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you, here's the reason why I'm praying this for you, that you may know what is the hope in which He's called you. And another thing, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And one more thing, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. As you look at your life, how far does the story of your faith travel? Does it make it to the next cubicle? Does it make it to the next office? Does it even make it throughout the company? Do people know when they get around you, they smell your faith, they see your love, and I don't mean that in, a, in negative connotations. There are those who wear their faith on their sleeve and you just soon like knock it off. 
I'm not talking about those who are self-righteous in their own ways. I'm talking about a true, genuine, beautiful, God-honoring kind of faith and love. That kind that, that Paul speaks of here. How far does the aroma of your faith go? How far do people see it? But again, I want you to see the commendation of Paul. I want you to see the thanksgiving of Paul. But I want you also to see the prayer of Paul. All rolled up in these verses that we just read. He first starts with this commendation, then he goes to a thanksgiving, and then he goes to a petition and how he is going to pray for them and how he has been praying for them. And I think what we see in Paul's writings here is that he is praying that they would see life through different lenses. And I want to say to all of us in this room today that if we would understand faith development as a process and not a destination, we'll be so much further down the road. So many people mark their faith as a point-in-time event. Yes, there is a point in time when I become a follower of Christ, but it is so much more than that. It is a process. It is ongoing. It is never-ending. That's why... They may have perfect faith, but Paul is praying that it will be an improving faith. So where in your life is God wanting to take your faith deeper? You may be satisfied with your faith. You may be satisfied with your love. But where is He wanting to take you? How is He wanting to build in excellence into your life? I didn't mention this in the beginning, but Elton True Love, True Blood said it like this that deliberate mediocrity is sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that mediocrity is like bathwater for the devil. See, when we slip into the bathwaters of mediocrity, we are bathing with the devil. So in your faith and in your life, where has mediocrity slipped in? And where is God wanting to take you? How can we be praying for one another? I think it's that we would see life and faith at a different level. There's three perspectives in, the, in your notes. You can jot them down. And I think you can see at least three prayers that Paul has. Again, he has this commendation in verse 15. In verse 16, he kind of goes into this thanksgiving. And then following verse 16, last part of verse 16 to verse 19, he goes into a prayer or a petition for these believers. And as he comes to this, he, he, he says this, the very first perspective that he would want all of us to have is the wisdom perspective. Wisdom perspective. Notice this. He says, he said in verse 16, he said, the Spirit, he says, I pray the Father that may give you a spirit of wisdom. A spirit of wisdom. I said last week, knowledge is the base of life, okay? You need to have knowledge. Knowledge gives you the fundamentals of life. It gives you skill sets in life. It gives you things to build your life on. But knowledge in and of itself is not enough. Wisdom gives you the ability to know what to do with the knowledge that you have. It helps you to sort through all the different opinions in knowledge that are out there. But wisdom takes us so much further. This is the way Adrian Rogers divides the two. He says, knowledge is needed to pass a test in school, but wisdom is needed to pass the test in life. Knowledge is learned. Wisdom is given. Knowledge comes from looking around. Wisdom comes from looking up. Knowledge comes by study. Wisdom comes by meditation with God. Wisdom teaches one how to apply his knowledge. That's what wisdom brings. That's what Paul's praying. Their faith is good. Their love is good. But it's not good enough. 
There needs to be more. What is the more? The more is wisdom. Whoa, oh, I pray that we would have wisdom to be able to handle our knowledge. If we have wisdom, we will have clarity in life. You take all the buckets of life out there and all of a sudden you can begin to take now life and bring it together and it brings a clarity to life that makes sense of life. Because life is quite convoluted. It's quite confusing at times. Because your emotions say this and your thoughts say this and society says this and you've got all these voices. But what wisdom, wisdom cuts through all of the voices to give us truth. Wisdom will help a person who's being pursued sexually by somebody who is maybe a, in relationship with them and they want them and they're not married and wisdom will give them the insight to say, no, not now. Wisdom will help you as you're making career changes and moves enable you to see through the bottom line to what really matters in the new job. Wisdom will give you the ability to, to see past what somebody's saying to what somebody's meaning to say. Wisdom gives you so much more that knowledge doesn't provide, that facts and figures don't give us. Wisdom helps you not just to separate out the good from the evil, but the good from the best. That's what wisdom brings we ought to pursue wisdom. Wisdom ought to be something that we ask God for. Write down James chapter 1, verse 5. He tells us to pray for wisdom. That's what Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesus. Please get wisdom. There's no greater, wiser man in all of those scriptures outside of Christ than, the, than Solomon, King Solomon, writer of most of the Proverbs that we have. He writes Proverbs chapter 8 from the angle of as, as if wisdom is speaking. And so if you were wondering today what you get when you get wisdom, this is some of the things that wisdom tells you you get with it. And you can jot these down, but I'm going to just read a smattering of verses from Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, 6 says, Listen, for I speak noble things, and what my lips say is right. Verse 8 says, all the words of my mouth are righteous. None of them are deceptive or perverse. You're looking for some clear, crystal clear message? Get wisdom. Verse 11, wisdom is better than precious stones. More than seeking that higher income. The bling bling of life. You need to be seeking wisdom. It is more precious than the stones and the values of life. Verse 14 says, I possess good advice and competence. Boy, don't we need more competence in our world. I have understanding and strength. Verse 15, it is by me that kings reign. You want to be CEO, president, leader of the team, whatever? Get wisdom. That's how kings stay in rule. Verse 18, with me are riches and honor, lasting wealth and righteousness. Verse 22, the Lord made me at the beginning of His creation. Verse 32, those who keep my ways are happy. You want to find joy in life? Get wisdom. You're going to find yourself making a lot fewer mistakes when you have wisdom. Verse 35, the one who finds, the one who finds me finds life. 
If I was to put the McDaniel amplified version over the top of that, I would say the one who finds me finds life is good. Back to our very thing. Wisdom brings life, brings depth, brings clarity to life that you don't get any other way. It's why Paul says, I'm praying this for you. It's why James said, pray that God would give you wisdom and he will give it to you liberally. See, Mike, how do I get it? I want it. It's mysterious. I know it is. It's not something you're going to pass a test. It's going to be life is the test. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You want to know where wisdom begins? It begins in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, that's, that's just the beginning. But it's not just a personal relationship that starts. It's ongoing. It's this fear, respect, this element of, God, I'm not God and you are God. That's where wisdom starts. And then it just continues throughout our life. The very first prayer of Paul for these good believers, these good believers, I'm not negating that. Their faith was being heard across land and sea. Their love was being seen in the community and in the fellowship. But he wanted more for them. He wanted wisdom for them. second thing he prays for them is Christ perspective. Christ perspective. Notice what he says in that passage. He said, He said that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I thought 20 years ago when Lori and I married that I could never love her any more than I loved her then. You remember the the love you had on the wedding day? You remember the the emotion that was inside of you on your wedding day? You remember the the commitment and the determination that you were going to make this work on your wedding day? You remember that love? Lori and I dated for five years. We kept ourselves pure in our relationship. It It was a beautiful time to come together as a couple. That was 20 years ago. I can tell you today, that I only thought I loved her 20 years ago compared to how I love her today. How does that happen? It happens because I continue in process, learn to love her, learn of her, have more revealed about her. I reveal more of myself to her. We're 20 years into this gig. In this past year, she's revealed some deep things in her heart to me that has been in her life that's been there for 20 years and she shared them with me. And I am so greatly endeared to her because of what she shared with me. That sharing, that revelation brought in an intimacy level that would not have been there otherwise. Notice these words, key words here, revelation. I'm praying that the revelation, this is the Greek word apocalypse. You get the word apocalypse, the unveiling, okay? The unveiling of something comes from this word. What do we want, what does he want us to know? The, the revelation in the knowledge of him. Sometimes we want to know God's will for our life. God, is this the job you want me to take? Is this the person you want me to marry? Is this the, where you want me to build this house? Is this, is, this the, is this the car you want me to drive? Is, you want me, whatever it is, we have all these decisions we face in life. We want to know God's will for that decision. And really what the desire should be is, God, if I know you, if I have the knowledge of you, there's an intimacy there that now 
and I can say this after 20 years of marriage, is that now I can read Lori's nonverbals. <laughs> Any of you guys can read the nonverbals? I can read senses and tones and feelings and, and things. That only happens because of time and revelation. And this is a life principle that I just put down this morning as I was going back through my notes. So there's no space, there's no screen, on, there's nothing. So just jot this down. Life principle, revelation of God comes through an intimacy with God. You will know God through revelation. You will have revelation through intimacy. When you are in a relationship with God, he says the knowledge of him, that's what I'm praying, is that you know the knowledge of him. The key is him, not his will. When you know him, you will know his will. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. See, it wasn't that they follow me, do my will for their life. And oh, by the way, my voice is over here, is that they hear my voice. And in that intimate relationship of knowing and distinguishing His voice from any other voice, that I am able to follow Him. Intimacy is vitally important in our relationship with Him. That we would know His will. Know that we would know Him. That we would know Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says, We have the mind of Christ. As a follower of Christ, I want His perspective. I want His mind. What I can pray for you, what you can pray for me, is God, show Yourself to Mike McDaniel. What I can pray for you is God, give them Your mind. May there be such an intimate relationship between you and them that their mind becomes, your mind becomes their mind. It's amazing. This is worldview talk. This is where we're thinking like God. And Barna estimates that only 51% of pastors have a Christian worldview, understand, see life from a biblical, God-relationship-centered relation uh, uh, perspective on life. And I want to say that when you have Christ's perspective, You have convictions in life. You now live and see life with deeper meaning because you are not just living your own free life. You are now living life through the lenses and through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So how would we pray for one another? We would pray, Oh God, give us the wisdom. That gives us clarity. Oh, God, give me your perspective on life. Because that will give me conviction in knowing how I'm to go. Because I'm now going with Him. He has revealed Himself to me. All right? Mystical, spiritual, yes. Will you have to use great intentionality? Will you have to, with great intensity even in your own life, be listening, mindful, thinking through, praying through. Yes, this is the spiritual journey to the good life. There's one more thing that Paul prays for these believers. Prayed that they would have a heart's perspective. A heart perspective on life. Now, I I don't 
I don't know everything about the heart, but doctors will tell us that you can't live without the baby, okay? You've got to take care of the ticker. It's doing things inside of your body that's keeping you alive right this minute. Doctors will tell you it may be the most vital organ in your body. In fact, without the heart pumping, really the brain, the, 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 any of the limbs, and anything else just really kind of shuts down if the heart is a function. The heart is, is center. You talk to a psychologist. They will tell you that the seed of a man's very being, and they'll even use the metaphor of the heart, the heart of the person is, is, is his emotional base. It's inside of him. It's greater than the, the person on the outside of him. So psychologists say the heart is the seat of our emotions, and, and, and doctors say the heart is, 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 is our... Uh, now, and again, what psychologists are talking about, not the organ of the heart, but, but then you have over here, you have the doctors. The heart's center. You come to Scripture, and what does Paul say? He said in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, how many of us see life? Hopefully most of us have all of our eyesight in this room today. But, but, but do you really see life through your heart? Do you process life through your heart? And I know, again, mystical way beyond us, but the heart is a very part, very center part of who we are. It's the inner man of who we are. The, and you can jot these down if you want, but the Bible speaks in Psalm 119 and in John 3 uh, uh, that the inner man, the heart of a man can see and, and he, can, he can hear in Matthew 13 and, and he can taste in Psalm 34 and, and he can smell in Philippians chapter 4 and he can touch in, in Acts chapter 17. The inner man is, is something that we cannot neglect. The inner man is we must understand the inner man, that, that heart of who we are, the essence of who we are. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 13, He says, They're seeing, yet see not. They're hearing, yet they hear not. What is it about this limitation? Is because I'm convinced in my 20 plus years in ministry and dealing with people personally up close on the highs and the lows of life, as I'm convinced that most people don't see life through their heart. They don't process life through an inner part of who they are. And it is the inner part of who we are that is the most most delicate. It's the inner core of who we are that drives everything on the outside. And if this inside isn't whole, isn't complete, because that's what happens when the heart perspective is there, there's a wholeness in life. And now life is clear and life, is, life makes sense and it's, it, it's, it's in totality. That's what happens. The heart perspective gives wholeness to our life. And I will say this about your heart, and again, call this an existential message because it's so much beyond maybe our normal thinking. Because again, I think many of us are good followers of Christ. We have a faith and we have a love, but there's so much more. Paul is praying that we would have so much more. And a part of understanding the inner man of who we are is again a mystical element of it because the inner man can experience some of the deepest joys of our life. When I became a Christ follower 
at eight years of age. To this day, I can remember sitting at my living room table and praying and recognizing that Jesus was my Savior. There was a joy that came on that day at eight that I can still envision this day at 42. There's a, I just can't explain it. There's something that also happens inside that inner man. There's a dark side because it will not only experience the greatest euphoria of life, but it will also, listen, experience the deepest pains of life. And these deepest pains of life is what I think holds us back from being whole Christians. If we don't understand the heart the inner person, the pains of our life will become scar tissue spiritually to cover up our life, to keep us from becoming whole. It wasn't until about five years ago that Lori and I, through a journey together, not intentional, it just was an amazing moment. It was in December, five years ago, when this light came on. And we realized that what we had been doing in our lives had been living life on skills and knowledge and life experience. I had been doing ministry on my skill set, on my knowledge, and what life experience I could pick up. I had been parenting on my skill set, on my knowledge and on life experiences that I'd picked up. I had been functioning as a boss, supervisor, whatever, on my skill set, on my knowledge, and my life experience. And because of issues in my life, because of issues in Lori's life, and because of some great godly counsel that came along beside us and walked with us, again, it was not of our planning but it was a process that we ended up walking through. And it was something that happened simultaneously, but yet individually separate from, from each other. And what happened is it opened up our eyes that we weren't whole. There was an element of our life that had been corridored off, scar tissued over, that could not be life fully lived for Christ fully lived in the joy and the abundance of the life that he wanted to live because of pains of the past. And what happened five years ago, to this day, Lori and I will look back on and talk about that experience as the most pivotal point in our 20 years of marriage, but in our 42 years of living on this earth, outside of maybe our salvation experience. Because we began to see life through our heart. Paul's prayer for us, my prayer for us, is that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. This is not a first-time issue. This is not a unique issue. And I know probably some of this say, Mike, I don't understand, but I do understand pain. Even Jesus with his disciples dealt with this. You take a, a situation many times. Mark, you read through the Gospel of Mark, and you'll find there where, 
where Jesus is literally feeding thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. It's just it's a beautiful story unfolding there. And, and, and then Jesus immediately, almost without haste, puts his disciples in the boat, tells them to go to the other side. And he doesn't go with them. He doesn't go with them. I think it was great intentionality on his heart, in his mind at that point. He puts them in the boat and sends them out. And can you imagine the conversation that was going on? Because these disciples didn't even have time to process with the people or with each other or with Jesus or any follow-up teaching at all. And all of a sudden, he puts them in the boat. And all as they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee, can you imagine the conversation? Can, do you believe what happened? All the conversations about the five loaves and two fish and what Jesus did. And another miracle. He's just amazing, man. And then all of a sudden, a storm comes. All of a sudden, life begins to crash in around them. It's just boom, boom, boom. It's happening all around them. Life is happening around them. And they're about to drown. And all of a sudden, this man, this ghost-like figure, starts walking on the water, walking out to them. And they get scared for a moment. And Jesus climbs into the boat. This ghost climbs into the boat and he calms the water. Again, another miracle, back-to-back miracles, almost within the same, probably within the same 12 hours. Back-to-back huge miracles. And yet they were afraid. And this is probably the most disturbing verse in all the Gospel of Mark for me. Because my fear is that you and I would not live a whole life because we would not see life through our hearts. And that is Mark chapter 6, verse 52, and it says this, They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts, their heart was hard. I don't know what had happened in the disciples' life, but there was something that corridored off, that scar-tissued over, They kept them from seeing the very work of God, that they would actually miss it. Miss it. Why did they miss it? They missed it for one reason. You say, oh, no, 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 they saw Jesus. They were touching the fish. They were passing it out. They were on the water. How could they miss that? They were literally living in the moment. All we have is black ink on white paper. They were living in the moment. If I was there, I would never have missed it. Whatever they missed, they, they missed it because of a condition inside of them. It was a closed-off, cornered-off heart that they could not see life through. You take these glasses away from me. I can read for just a little bit. What he was praying, he wanted them to see life. He wanted them, Paul wanted them to see life through their hearts and not just through their heads. There's so much I could say to this. I could share on this for weeks on end and not do it justice. Because here's the issue. It is not you hearing from me and you downloading information that's going to make the difference. It's you going into your heart with the help of godly people and with the help of God's Word and His Spirit that you will experience the enlightenment and seeing life through your eyes. What happens when this happens? Good life. Good life happens. He gives three results. He mentions what happens out of this. One, he says, you will see hope-filled calling. Look with me. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he 
has called you. Do you struggle to know God's will for your life? Maybe it's because you're not seeing life through wisdom. Maybe you don't have Christ's perspective. Maybe you're not seeing life through your heart. And what you're doing is you're trying to get to the end and saying the end's going to justify the means. And the means is just as important. Is that you are having God's perspective, that you are having the wisdom, and that you are seeing life through your heart. And then you can get to the end and you can say, okay, God, that's why I am where I am and I'm not up here or I'm not over there. There's a hope-filled call for your life. Let's, let's, let's pray that we can, can see like this so that we don't miss it. Get wisdom. Know God's perspective. Learn to see through your heart. Number two, the second result of this is in that same verse when he talks about that you will see wealth of your inheritance. You will see the wealth of your inheritance. Again, we talked about all the inheritance that comes through a relationship with Christ a couple of weeks back. But here's, here's, what he, here's what he said. He said, the riches of the inglorious inheritance in the saints. Late newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst was an art collector enthusiast. He liked to collect things of great value in art, and he had heard of some artifacts and some some valuable things out there that he had identified, and he wanted them badly. He was so wealthy, he actually took one of his employees, he says, I want you to go scour the world, and I want you to find these items right here. Major task for an individual, but that was his assignment. So this employee of his makes it his life's journey, his desire to find these artifacts for this very wealthy publicist. And he comes back an art enthusiast. And he comes back, he says, you'll not believe this, but I found them. So well, where are they and how much do they cost? He says, well, they're nothing. They're free because they're already in your warehouse. And had you checked your own catalogs, your own inventory, you would have found that you already owned what you were looking for. And I think about the inheritance that we have in Christ. But maybe we don't see it because our hearts are blind. Or maybe we don't see it because we don't have the mind of Christ. Or maybe we don't see it because the spirit of wisdom is not inside of us. You begin to see the value of the good life. You begin to see the value of this great life. Here's the third, is that you will see the power of your God. You will see the power of your God. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? His power set aside, put in place for us that we would be used by Him. That He would be working in us. My, to open up our eyes to what God wants to do in and through us to move us maybe beyond our comfort zone to take you outside of what you're good at to what He wants to do in you. What is it that His power can't do in you because you are relying on your power to do in you? And that if you would get out of your way, out of His way, He would be able to do in you what you cannot do in and of yourself.